And so uh, it's good to see you all here and to worship the Lord and to praise Him. And uh, before we get started to uh, into some uh, time where we worship the Lord through some songs, I want to have to uh, remind you of a couple of announcements, or rather a few. Uh, the first is that uh, obviously it's, it's November, and uh, normally we would have a, a Thanksgiving uh, fellowship, uh, but because of COVID and requirements for social distancing and masks and and all those things, uh, we won't. Uh, we don't have any plans right now to have any uh, Thanksgiving fellowship, which is uh, unfortunate. Uh, the other uh, uh, announcement that I have is uh, we have we do have our congregational meeting uh, this month, and that is the twenty second, right? The twenty second, uh, and so we are in the final stages of kind of, uh, of putting together the the budget for twenty twenty one. Uh, that'll come out soon. So as soon as that out, uh, as soon as we finish that, then we'll send that out to you. And so you can look at that and have some time to look through it, generate any questions you may have prior to the meeting. And then the last uh, announcement that I have is that um, I mentioned it in the, in the newsletter for this week, but in case you didn't see it, uh, and that is that we are uh, thinking about extending the service a little bit, just adding one more song uh, to what we normally do. Uh, normally we have four, so we, we uh, uh, increasing it to five songs, uh, so just so that you are aware. So those are the announcements I have, and uh, let's go to the Lord and worship Him through some songs. Please stand for our call to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Ephesians 3. To me, this is Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's worship our Lord who is our cornerstone. changing grace 
shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne.
Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. And we are and we are the body. We all have different functions, but we're all part of the same body connected to the same head. From you, we have our life and breath. From you, we have salvation. You are the reason that we come together each week. Lord, and you, you died for your bride. You died for the church which shows the incredible love that you have for her. So we want to come to you this morning remembering the, that deep and abounding love that you have for your bride. And we want to meet together to visibly display the, the gospel. Lord Jesus, you said that 
that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It is not because of anything that we do. It is not because of any one person or a group of individuals. But the reason why the church stands, it is because of Jesus Christ. It is only because of you. And we can be confident and remain with hope that the church will continue to stand no matter what happens in the world. Because if you had said that the church will stand and that nothing can prevail against her, then the church will stand and nothing will prevail against her. We pray that you may help us to continue to find encouragement in that truth and to remember that truth, especially as we live in these, in these difficult times. Lord, and we, we come before you this morning and we just, we pray just over this election, Lord, as we come into what may well be a tumultuous week. Father, we pray for for peace, we pray for stability, we pray for civil rest. Father, we pray for great wisdom and understanding as we come, as we go to the, to the polls. Father, we pray that We pray that no matter what happens, no matter the outcome, that we would continue to trust in your sovereignty, Lord. Your sovereignty is a great comfort to all Christians, knowing that you are in the heavens and that you do as you please and that all things you work together according to the counsel of your will. So help us to rest in your sovereignty, Lord, that you have all things under control, And that we need not fear or be anxious about anything. Father, we pray. We pray for we pray for our our presidents and we pray also for the for 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 Joe Biden as well. We pray for these men. We pray that you would care for their families. We pray that you may sustain them. We pray that you would give them understanding and wisdom. Father, we pray that whoever, that whatever the outcome may be, that our nation would be brought to greater peace and unity. And even though there's no such thing as having a perfect unity in this world, but we pray that there would still be a unity despite the many differences that we share, that we have. Father, we pray for a great wisdom and understanding on the part of, of Christians as they go just two days from now to, to the polls. We pray that you would help us all to be able to make a well-informed decision with a clear conscience. Father, we pray that no matter the outcome, we pray that you would put in place policies, that you would put in place people that will continue to protect the family. 
because we know that the family is the foundation of any healthy and thriving society. And that if the family is lost, well, then society at large is lost. So we pray that you would protect families. Father, we pray that our hope would continue to be in Christ. Father, we pray for our local elections. We pray for great wisdom and understanding. Father, we pray that you would put the right individuals in place that are according to your will and not ours. We pray that whoever sits in the Oval Office, that the church would be eager to maintain its unity. Because we know that the, that the enemy would love nothing more than to separate the unity amongst believers. Because if the unity is lost, well, there goes, there goes the gospel. Father, we pray. We pray that you would keep us and protect us. We pray that no matter the outcome, Lord, that we would continue to do what you call us to do, that we would be faithful in what you call us to do. Because at the end of the day, not much really changes in our day-to-day. We're still called to be faithful parents. We're called to be faithful spouses. We're called to be faithful friends. We're called to be faithful employees or employers. We're called to be faithful friends, faithful neighbors. So help us, Lord, and give us the grace and the strength to continue to do those things well. Because that calling hasn't changed over our lives, no matter what happens. So, Father, we come before you and we pray these things in the name of Christ. We ask that your will be done, Lord, and not ours. We ask that you would help us to continue to rest in your sovereignty to look to you as our ultimate hope and not in man. So we lift these things up to you and we we pray the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts So we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would, please turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I want to pick up in verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15, we're going to read down to verse 23. For this reason... 
because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the words of the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, who said that the church is the dearest place on earth. So we pray, Lord, that as we walk through a series of sermons on the church, would you help us to see the church as the dearest place on the earth. That we would have a, a new love for the church as we come to understand more and be, have a more biblically informed knowledge of what the church is and what she does. Help us and grow us in our understanding and grow us in our love for the bride of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might remember back in 2018 when uh, in the NBA Finals, and even if you're not into basketball, you may have seen the reactions on Facebook or Twitter, but in the NBA Finals, which was against the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors, in the first game, it was tied and only seconds left. J.R. Smith had the ball for the Cavaliers and could have shot the ball. Instead, he held on to the ball. And then you have the classic reaction by LeBron James where he's standing like this, angry, wondering, why aren't you shooting the ball? And J.R. Smith didn't realize that the game was actually tied and he could have ended the tie. And that set off just a, a humorous reaction all throughout social media. That reaction that everybody, I'm sure, is familiar with on the part of LeBron James is everybody's familiar with that and it just became a, a meme. Right, applied it to a different context, like uh, uh, you, you, when you do all the work for a group project, you hand it in to the guy who forgets to turn in the project. Or, we already made a stop, why didn't you go to the bathroom then? Right, and then evangelical circles, this, was also, uh, this also circulated. It's kind of a long one, but in evangelicals, uh, in the Christian world, but they had that same reaction. They posted of uh, LeBron James in that reaction. They said, uh, uh, church literally means assembly. How do you have an assembly that never assembles? And the idea is intended, it's intended to be a joke, but it's also intended to speak a little bit of truth as well. You see, because as, as Christians... I'm not talking about just our church, but just Christians, universal church, but Christians at large, we, we devote so much of our time and energy and resources, our very life to, uh, to, to the church. And yet, how many Christians actually understand what the church is 
or what the church is for or what the church does when it meets together. Why do they do certain things? Why are they about certain things? And even why does the church assemble? There seems to be a lot of or lack of understanding concerning the church. At least with regards, at least when am I talking to various different pastors, to many different people, there seems to be such a lack of understanding of the church. And yet people, as Christians, we devote a lot of our time to the church. The church is incredibly important. And the church should be important to you and the church should be important to me because, well, first and foremost, the church is important to Christ. The church should be important to us because Christ identifies himself with the church. The church is united to Christ. The church should be important to us because Christ founded the church. Right? Ephesians 2 tells us that the church is founded on the, uh, on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church should be important to us because Christ purchased the church with his own life. We see that in Ephesians 5 where he lays down his life for the bride, which is the church. The church should be important to us because the church is his body. Right? We are members of the same body with Jesus Christ being the head. The church should be important to us because the church is the chief instrument of bringing the glory of God to the world. And it should be important to us because it is the chief means of bringing the gospel to the world. It is a lack of understanding of what the church is and why does she assemble and what the church is for that has led many people in various different circles to not serve as in the way that God requires. We don't understand the differences between a true church and a false church. It's a lack of understanding that actually makes us more susceptible to false doctrine. When we don't understand who the church is and what she does and what she is for, well then, we love the church and the, the people that can make up the church less than what God requires. Right? We, instead of coming to the church to serve, we come to the church to be served. We want to instead become consumers rather than givers. And so, for these reasons... I thought it might be helpful for us to just talk about what is the church. And my prayer and hope is that for many of you, this will solidify, this will clarify, this will affirm some things that you already know and understand about the church. For some of you, my prayer and hope is that, uh, that you will learn to understand and know some things that you didn't know about the church. For some of you, I hope and pray that the Lord might correct some misunderstandings that you might have with regards to the church. In your bulletin is a definition of the church. The church is a people redeemed through Christ from slavery to sin who gather together for the glory of God. The church is a people redeemed through Christ from slavery to sin who gather together for the glory of God. So, 
what I'll do this morning is actually break down that definition down into three different parts. And I honestly, I, I don't think I'll get through all three different parts this morning. So this might be a, a two-part sermon. But the first point begins with a people redeemed through Christ from slavery to sin. And this kind of gets that, that sound doctrine. So when Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Jesus, uh, Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus in response says that I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What he's not saying is that he'll, he's building his church on Peter. Although Peter and the other apostles form a part of the foundation of the gospel, but Jesus is saying that upon that confession of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, upon that confession, he will build his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Historically, there have been two great opponents of the church. One from the outside and one from within. From the outside, historically, has been persecution. It might be uh, socially ostracizing Christians. And it also includes uh, physical violence towards Christians with the intention of shutting up the church, of closing the doors of the church. The other great opponent of the church comes from within, and that is heresy. When churches divide over fundamental understandings or fundamental knowledge or doctrine or theology concerning the person of Jesus Christ and salvation... And so, if we are to be uh, the church, if we are to be united to Christ, well, then we have to understand what are the essentials of the gospel. Right? And those essentials are that God is eternal, that God created the world, that God created man in his own image, but man disobeyed God. And through his disobedience, sin entered the world. Through his disobedience, the universe was, cur- was cursed. Through his disobedience, there is death. Through his disobedience, every single person that came after Adam without exception is born in sin. They have a depraved nature to where that their hearts are bent inward. Right? So it's the reason why children do not have to be taught how to, uh, how to be selfish. They are naturally selfish, right? Me, 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 I, I, I. And you have to correct their behavior to think about other people. It's like what Body Bauckham would say, that's, that's a viper in a diaper. But man is turned inward, and not only that, but man is separated from God because of his sins. He's in need of justification. He's in need of righteousness. He's in need of salvation. He's in need of forgiveness of his sins, because without the forgiveness of sins, well, then he is then destined to live eternally in a place separated from God where there is fire and punishment. And it's why God then sends his son into the world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, a sinless life, was both God and fully man, both at the same time, and died on the cross for the sins of his people and rose again so that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. that this salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, only through the works of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. And the gospel includes a command as well. 
They command to believe in the gospel, to trust in that gospel, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. To follow him is to live a life of discipleship where you are growing in Christ-likeness. And part of the essentials of the gospel that we have to get right is that Jesus not only rose again from the dead, but that Jesus will also one day return and take his bride up with him. And there are other essentials as well, like the Bible as well, the scriptures, that this is, in fact, the infallible word of God, that this is the actual words of God and not man. And that it has everything that we need for life and godliness. And also the Holy Spirit, right? We have to agree on who the Holy Spirit is, that he is our helper, that he is the one who is a guarantee of our salvation. He's the one who sanctifies us. Now, there are other tertiary issues that we don't necessarily have to agree upon, but still have, but we can still have unity with one another, like the uh, like the timing of Jesus' return. Is he going to come first and then we will be taken up with him or will there be a rapture of the church first and then Christ will come, right? There's no, we don't have to agree on those minor details in order to have fellowship and unity with one another. Right, so along with those essentials, right, we need, to we need to come to an agreement about what salvation is or how to have salvation, that salvation comes through faith in the gospel that we are not saved by our good works, that even if your good works outweigh your bad works, you're still not saved by those good works. We're not saved by anyone else's good works, saved by saved the, the works of Christ. And we also don't believe in a purgatory, that man goes into a place where he is, pays for his sins until his sins are paid for, and then he can go and live with God. We don't believe that there is such a place. We don't believe that the Bible tells us that there is such a place. And that in order to be saved, well, then someone we have to has to come through the gospel, right? Not through any other means, right? Though as we look at the world, the world, all of creation is intended. Romans one tells us tells us that the world is intended to tell us about who God is, that there is a God, that there is an eternal Creator. But it is it, it is not enough for anyone to be saved from their sins. To be saved from sin, one has to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot be saved by even seeing the good works of a Christian, though those are helpful in drawing unbelievers, and that I cannot be saved by mommy and daddy's faith, that that faith is transferred over to me. No, faith is something that I am called to have on my own in order to be saved from sin. And then what happens, what this results in is unity. It is from the gospel that we get the church And what happens when we are saved, when we are living a life of repentance, when we affirm these same things, is that we are called to live a life of unity, a life of unity with Jesus Christ, where he is the head of the church and we are his body. Right? Jesus Christ identifies himself with the church. That is why when, uh, when Saul in the book of Acts is persecuting the church and Jesus confronts him and Jesus says to him, why? he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because Christ identifies himself with the church. 
not only that, but not only, not only do we enjoy a unity with, one, with Jesus Christ, but we enjoy a unity with one another. That we are, though we have different functions, we are a part of the same body. And so, in order for us to, first, to really understand who the church is and what the church does, we need to understand that what exactly gives birth to the church, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this gospel results in the church, and the the birth of the church, and this unity that we have with God, a unity that we have with one another. And all in all, essentially, one of the overarching purposes that I, that I, I guess I, I hope to articulate and kind of hopefully with the help of the Spirit to instill in our hearts is, as I said in the prayer, that, that the church would be to all of us the, the most dearest, the most loving, the most joy-filled place on earth. And so for that reason, we have to understand, well, who is the church? What does the church do? And that confession of Christ, those essentials are are, are vital for the church. So then, the church is a people redeemed through Christ from slavery to sin. Then second, who gather together. This has the idea of community. So in Acts chapter 2, when we have the, the birth of the first church after the preaching of the gospel, it tells us that these new believers devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, before I move on any further, just a quick disclaimer. Right, we live in kind of a strange times, and our church is unique in the sense that we have many uh, people, many uh, who are actual members who, for medical reasons, cannot leave the home. Right, and, I th- and we have uh, people in the church, including members who, uh, because of COVID, do not feel comfortable enough to leave the home and come here on Sunday mornings. I think the Lord provides special grace for these unique times and circumstances and situations. But all that to say is that the thing that we have to agree upon is that the Lord's intention for His church is for the church to regularly meet together. Right, that's why you have kind of that, again, humorous, but still truth that how do you have an assembly that doesn't assemble? And so even if, right, if, if, you, if that's you, if you cannot be here on Sunday mornings, we understand that, I understand that, but I will still encourage you to find other ways to find fellowship with the people of the church. Now, the German reformer Martin Luther would say that there are seven marks of the church. So that it is, number one is the word of God. That is the, we have the, the scriptures, we preach the word of God, we preach the gospel. Number two, the Lord's Supper, an administration, right and proper administration of the Lord's Supper. Number three, uh, baptism. Number four, that the church has ministers as they are described to us in the scriptures in the New Testament. Mark number five is public prayer and public praise and thanksgiving. I think the idea of prayer not only includes, I think, in, I think Luther is including not only singing songs, but also in public praises as well as in sharing of testimonies. Number six, the practice of church discipline. And number seven, endurance. That is the church endures the hard times and even endures persecution. Now, over time, that list has been condensed to three, 
that is preaching, baptism, and Lord's Supper. And baptism and Lord's Supper, you could say that those two kind of uh, encompasses many of those other marks. But we are, a, as a church, a church is one that gathers together. So, uh, of course, that has the idea of fellowship. Right? The early church devoted themselves to fellowship. And that idea of fellowship also must include service. Right? You cannot have fellowship if there isn't a service, if there isn't a serving of one another. In Galatians 5.13, right, we're called to serve one another through love. In the New Testament, there are between 40 to 51 another commandments. But to love one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving one another, reconciling with one another. I mean, there's between 40 to 51 another commandments. It's hard to fulfill those commandments if the church never assembles. And, and it's part of the reason why we have community groups. Because it's, in my opinion, right, to meet together once a week for an hour, hour, 15, hour, 30 minutes just isn't enough. Right. And fellowship has this idea of something that's ongoing, something that you regularly do. It's hard to maintain fellowship with somebody that you only talk to once a week. It's hard to maintain unity with believers if you only see them once a week. Now, the, this idea of service also includes giving, giving of time and energies, but it also includes giving financial resources. Now, I might, I might shock you when I, when I say this. That is that I don't think that there is a New Testament commandment or president to tithe. Some of you be like, wow, the pastor just told me I don't have to give to the church anymore. But that's not what I'm saying at all. The tithing is actually an Old Testament commandment that you tithe 10% of what you have and said the New Testament commandment is offering. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, sorry, of 9.6, it talks about this giving and that this giving had to be done cheerfully in what, in what one has decided in his heart. So that could be 10%. That could be less than 10%. That could be more than 10%. But the commandment is that you give, but you do it cheerfully in what you have decided in your heart, no matter what that percentage might be. Now, I would encourage you, like, if the, if the Lord sees fit to, to bless you financially, if you've are, uh, are, got a promotion and a salary increase, if uh, you've been able to pay off debt and that frees some of your financial resources, that you should prayerfully consider about giving more to the church. But even if you are not able, right, if, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if things are very tight and you are not able to give 10%, don't see that as a commandment. The Lord says, as long as you do it cheerfully and what you have decided in your heart, it is still seen as something that is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And a part of this fellowship also includes prayer. In the first church, we see that they devoted themselves to apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. 
right? It's why we pray on Sunday mornings. And I would argue that praying on Sunday mornings for five minutes just isn't enough. That we should be praying a lot more. And we'll get to prayer in another sermon. We're devoting an entire sermon just to prayer in the church. Now, this last one with the, with, when it comes to fellowship is uh, one that a lot of uh, Christians might uh, disagree upon. And part of it is just, just lack of understanding. Part of it is just there isn't, uh, there's no, I guess, no New Testament passage that says to you one must do so, but this is the area with regards to membership. Right? Where does membership fall in the context of the church? Right? And many will argue, well, I don't see membership in the church. There's no passage in the, te- in the Bible that tells me to become a member of the church. So why am I going to become a member of the church? And that's true. There is no passage in the Bible that says you should become a member of a local church. But I would argue, as many have before me, and historically, and by, especially by many individuals who are a lot smarter than I am, that even though there isn't an explicit command in the Bible to become a member of a local church, that the membership is implicit in numerous passages. So, to name a few, Hebrews 10.24-25 commands us to not neglect do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And I would say that that's a hard passage to hold each other accountable to if there isn't a, if you're not formally a member of a particular church. Right, and I would, I could come to you as a brother and try to encourage you, hey, I haven't seen you at the church in months and try to encourage you that way. But as a command, I can't hold you accountable to it because technically you're not a member of the church. It's like being a part of a, of a club, right? If you're part of any club, they require you to be a member of that club or like a golf club or something, and that you have these membership benefits and you make use of whatever the resources they have, but they can't, you keep them accountable because they are a member of the particular club. club. And the church is much more than a club, but... When you are meeting together, when you're, church membership essentially communicates two things. One, that you are publicly affirming that, that I believe the same things, that I believe the gospel with these brothers and sisters, that we believe the same gospel. And the second thing that it communicates is that, that I am committing my time, my energies, my resources, my finances to this particular church. It doesn't, it's not intended to be cultish. It's not intended to mean that you cannot fellowship with anybody outside of Seacoast Community Church. But it's saying that I am committing to this particular church. And that is also a commitment to meet regularly with the church. Another command that's hard to fulfill is 1 Peter 4.10, along with many other one another commandments, right, using gifts, that we are to use our gifts to serve one another. Right, because if I'm not a member of this church, I could technically use my, we can call them my preaching gifts to go preach in another church on a Sunday morning. Or you could use your, ch- your gifts for teaching or your gifts for children and use them at another church in this one, but then that means I could never count on you when we need you. 
And the question is, well, who is that one another we're called to serve with our gifts, according to 1 Peter 4? Who is that one another? Is it all churches everywhere? And it makes much more sense to say that, no, it's a, it's a particular church, one another in the context of a local church. Another one, a big one, actually, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says to obey your leaders and submit to them because they are the ones who are giving an account to the Lord because they are, watch, they are, they are watchers, keepers of your soul. Now, the question is, how, if you're not a member of the church, how do you identify who are your leaders? Is it the leader of Seacoast Community Church? Is it the leader of the Mormon church behind us? Is it the leader of uh, leaders of a church in Dover? I mean, how do you identify which ones are your leaders? How do you identify which ones are the ones that you are called to submit to? And then in turn, for leaders... In our case, for myself and Jay, how do we know which ones we are called to watch over? How do we know which ones we are going to be held accountable for the judgment day? Without a formal process, or some kind of formal process of a membership. Right? Am I, am I your leader just simply because you say that I'm your leader? Is it determined by how long you've been attending the church? If that's the case, well then... When did you cross the mark of becoming a visitor to becoming a member? Has it been is it three weeks? Is it three months? Is it three years? Right? I've never, I, I don't know, I've never known the answer to that question. I've never talked to anybody who knows the answer to that question. So if you do, please let me know. Or is it by how much money you give? If so, what's the right amount? Is it determined by how much time you invest in a particular church? If so, then how do you quantify that time to be able to tell me that you've officially become a member of the church to where you can call the leaders of this particular church your leaders? And so it makes sense that there is, that the that when New Testament is communicating this command to submit to your elders or submit to your leaders, that they have this idea of membership because there's, they know exactly which ones are their leaders. And it's also difficult, and this is the most controversial point, it's difficult to practice church discipline where you don't have some kind of formal membership process. When according to Matthew 18 when we see somebody who is called a brother or sister in unrepentant sin, say, having an affair, and you personally know about it, well, then you are called, according to Matthew 18, to go to that person privately and gently and lovingly call him to repentance. And if they refuse to, well, then you take another individual with you and then go with that second person and do the same thing again. And they still refuse to repent of their sin. Well, then you're called to bring it to the church. And the church that includes the elders. And in that case, after that, the elders do not, at the, if the, if the, after, being, uh, after being confronted by the elders, the person still refuses to repent of their sin. Well, then Jesus tells us that that person should be excommunicated. 
It doesn't mean that the person is no longer welcome to come to the church, but it just means that you can no longer affirm that person as a brother or sister in Christ because they are no longer walking in the holiness that God requires or in the repentance that God requires. And it's difficult to remove somebody from membership if they've never been a member in the first place. And so it's difficult to follow that command of Matthew 18 of church discipline if there isn't some kind of formal process of membership. And all that church membership is, is just essentially is that you're communicating that you are committing yourself to this local body of believers to fellowship with them, to meet regularly with them, to use your gifts, to edify and to grow the church. And you do so, you commit in this way because you affirm the same things that they do. And so, I don't... I could go into the third point, but we would probably be here for like another half hour. So, let me just wrap it up here. The church is important to Christ, and therefore it should be important to us. And we are called to uh, affirm the same things. We, what brings us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we come together to affirm these same things, to glorify God because of these things. And we come together to fellowship, to serve one another, to pray with one another, to encourage one another, to love one another. And that is why we, right, as as a pastor, I always encourage people to pursue membership because it's just a way of saying I'm committing to this local body of believers because I want to give my time and energies to them because I want to love them and I want them to love me in return. According to Ephesians, it tells us that the Lord Jesus has given to the church apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Another way of saying that in some translations is that, that the church, that, the, that, the, that Jesus gives elders, pastors, and teachers to the church for the perfecting of the saints. Now, of course, we will not get to a place of sinless perfection in this life, but the idea is that we pursue this perfecting, where we are growing in Christ-likeness. And in the context of our doing so is in the church primarily. It is difficult to live out as a Christian. It's difficult to mature as a Christian outside of the church. Calvin, John Calvin writes, All who reject the spiritual food of the soul divinely offered to them by the hands of the church deserve to perish of hunger and famine. So aside from that being a very stark statement, it speaks to just how essential the church is. It's essential for your life. It's essential for my life, right? If we are to grow in Christ-likeness, if we are to grow and persevere through the hardships that we personally face, if we are to uh, persevere through any persecution that we might face, right, then the church is vital, And hence why we're called to not neglect the meeting, because we need it. 
right? And again, that isn't directly speaking to those who, for medical reasons, can't get here. But this is a passage speaking to those who may refuse, for whatever reason, to not regularly fellowship with the church. They're saying that they're doing it to the detriment of their own soul. So for, for this reason, for the fact that the church, the self, this context, what we do here on Sunday mornings, what we do in the context of community groups, what we do in the context of any other meetings that we may have, whether it's lunch with another, in the, with another person in the church or whatever it may be, all these things show that the church is the dearest place on earth. Because there's a most, it should be the most, one of the most joy-filled places on earth. The Lord has given us the church for these reasons. And so the church is important to us, and it should be because it is important to Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for bringing us to one another. We thank you for the unity that we have with you, the unity that we have with one another. Lord, I, I'm thankful for the many ways that you have gifted my brothers and sisters in this church whether they are members or not, and how they have used those gifts and their time and energies and resources to grow and to edify, to encourage the saints. And I pray that you would continue to help us to do those things. Help us to see the church as the most dearest place on earth. And help us to rejoice that we get to be a part of that. Thank you for being good to us. And help us to remember that we follow you because you are the head of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship.
And as we come to our time of benediction, I want to invite uh, Demi back to the stage. So today we celebrate Pastor Appreciation Day. So we wanted to give a Demi a gift showing our appreciation for him as our pastor. And wanted to thank you for your faithfulness to God and to his people. And if you want to stay up here, (laughs) as we come to our benediction, I wanted to pray this prayer both over you, but also over him as well. This also comes from Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed until we return again, Lord willing.